We are in Champions League, man. That was my Dilly din, dilly dong, come on. I will love it if we beat them. Love it. This is the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast with Gary Kearney. Hello, welcome to the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast. My name is Gary Kearney. Joining me for this episode is Ali Bain. He is the current academy manager at Discovery Soccer Club. He's a wide range of experience in the game, both in the US and in the UK. Absolute brilliant resource on Twitter, tactical analysis, writing, different ideas. So we jump on a topic here of build-up. We haven't done one of these in a while where we take a specific topic and then try and get into as much detail as we can. So this one is on build-up. We talk about his philosophy training structure how does he balance patience with pointless possession how does he deal with mistakes who's his inspirations how is it structured what kind of zones does he use the opposed unopposed we go into a lot of stuff here so really really looking forward to hearing your thoughts on this at gary kernin on twitter at gary kernin on instagram if you're a fan of the podcast or any of the content that we've put together at modern soccer coach Please join me on the new MSC community platform just launched this month. Online communication platform where coaches can discuss topics. Different one every day. Lots of content up there already. A database of sessions, tactical analysis, different ideas on training. Check it out. There's a link on the social media accounts and there should be one on this podcast as well. Two weeks free trial then it's only $6 a month to access everything and get involved right away. Thanks for joining me on that. Thanks for joining me in the podcast. Here's Ali. Enjoy. Ali, thanks so much for joining me today on the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast. Really, really excited to get you on. Delighted to be here, mate. Thanks for asking me on. So the topics build up, obviously something that you, you put a lot of stuff out, you're really, really passionate about. So I wanted to kick it off with you simply describing your philosophy as a coach when it comes to, to this aspect of the game. It's a good question, mate. I, you know, I think language is important when we talk about football now because it can be misconstrued. And I think when it comes to philosophy, it's important that coaches can use language to describe not only to other coaches, but to their players. And I think to say, okay, I'm a possession-based philosophy, I think we're beyond that now. I think there's so many nuances in football well, if I knock it 70 yards and my striker controls it, we're still in possession in the same way as if we pass it 400 times coming out the back, we're still in possession. So I've tried to use the phrase controlled possession in a way that almost allows people to understand when we're trying to attack, right, which we want to do more of in my philosophy, we want to attack more than we defend. How can we do that in such a way that not every attack ends up with a turnover. Not every attack ends up with the ball going out the field. You know, there has to be moments of the game where we're, we're still in control of the possession back and forth. So in that regard, Gary, I'd say my philosophy is controlled possession and the build-up piece is an integral part of that because, yes, we want to keep possession and break down the opponent, but that has to be matched by what are the opponent doing to presses, right? How are they trying to defend 
how we attack. And those two have to marry up because if I've got a slow and laboured possession against a high aggressive press, then there's only going to be one winner there, right? And and conversely, I've got quick, short build-up play, but the opposition are just backing off and sitting and guarding their goal. Well, that's not going to marry up either. So we have to be agile in those moments of controlled possession and understand not only you know being aware of what my team's doing, but what's the opposition doing? You know, we're looking at them as well. I mean, we just talked before we started recording there about skimming the surface and trying to go a little bit more in depth with football and how we're consuming it as coaches. But it looks as if we're we're almost communicating the game in one way or the other. You've got one school is pointless possession, which is simply counting the number of passes, which I think we're getting beyond that. But yeah, the second right. one is because Pep said possession is a tool. Uh, what what's it the tool for? And if it's the tool for scoring a goal, then you're gonna you are gonna turn it over a lot of times. You're saying there that it's got to be the tool to actually control the game and manipulate the opposition. Absolutely, and, and I think you could even take it one step uh, back and say your build up really it's almost like two separate games we're playing, right? And the first game is can we get the ball up to the f- final third and still be in a position where we're not running after it. It's not a through ball. And then when you enter the final third, that's almost like a separate game because, you know, that back line you're up against could be the strongest part of your opponent, right? So how can we get ourselves into that final third in such a way that creating chances and scoring goals is actually easier for us rather than, okay, it's great we've broke the other team down, but now we're all over the place and we're knackered by the time we've got to that final third, you know? It's, like I say, it's, it's using, yes, that, that phrase used there, using possession as a tool, that is such a blanket statement, right? But but where, you know, where are my team's strengths? Is my best players my wingers? Well, if that's the case, how can I get them in a position where they can make lots of attacking actions? Um, and like I say, that going back a step again from that is the players understanding really the mechanics of you know where we're going to go. I want to make it as easy and as clear for the players as we can. right? I don't want to give them 50,000 options. I want to be, this is where you're going with it next. And that, that even in itself, Gary, is a, a bit of a contentious one for, for a lot of coaches because of the guided discovery piece and you know hip developing players. There's an element sometimes in football, you've just got to know what it is you're doing, right? And feel confident in, in that moment. You you mentioned that patient in the build up, and this is one that I'm fascinated with the the balance between patient in the build up and then the slow and stagnant possession. And you talked about being clear and and easy to understand from the players. How do you communicate that, or how do you teach that to your players? The difference between the two. Well, I think the first uh, portion of it is their positioning, right? So let's take a goal kick for example. We want to have an understanding going into a game that if we're playing against, let's say, a 4-3-3, where are the holes in that system, right? So the gaps between the fullback and the winger, or it could be something as simple as the gap between the two centre-backs, right? We want to, first of all, position all of the players in such a way that it makes it hard to defend against us the minute the goalkeeper puts the ball into play. I think from that... We then need to adjust our possession based on how high the teams come against us. Are they, are they pressing on one side? Are they, are they drop off? 
and then start to make your decisions from there. And again, that that's tough maybe to generalise, right? But if we were to give a generalisation, if the centre-back can play a through ball for the striker, and the striker goes in and scores, then that's what we do. And then we work back from that. Well, if the midfielder can get it, turn play for a striker, and he can run through and score, great, that's our next passage. So we're trying to work almost back from what's the easiest way to score, right? And obviously, in any game of football, the opposition's not just going to let your striker go through and score. So that's where it becomes more complex, right? That's where it becomes more structured, okay, well, we want to pull the opposition out of the defensive shape. So does that mean some rotations? Does that mean we're passing the ball into areas where they don't want to defend? All of those little nuances come in your prep, right? So if you're up against a 4-2-3-1 and you don't know what the team plays like, there's going to be some mechanisms in there you can figure are going to come up. And there's others that you're going to need to watch the team play first to know what it is or how it is that they press. So there are some generalizations you can give your players, but obviously the more prepared you are, the better prepared your players are going to be. Got to ask this one. Opposed versus unopposed, specifically in, you know, when you're training the build-up, maybe early on in the season, you're talking about those, that first first aspect there, the positioning. Where do you stand on this here? What kind of work do you do? How do you balance it on the training pitch? Again, this is just how I learned as a footballer. So this this is something that helped. Experiments I've been in, it's worked for me in terms of the transition and the information across, and that's in an opposed environment. Um, because that pressure, that pressure piece that you're up against, right? For me, anyway, is everything. It, it affects the communication you have with your teammates. It affects the self communication of okay, what am I going to do next? But I think that decision making piece is re- also related to your technique. So, if someone's coming at me and showing me on my left foot, technically, I need to solve that problem. So if we were doing it in like a shadow phase against no defenders, could I get those same repetitions? There's a percentage I could get, right? There's a, there's a percentage of uh, the reality that I, or those decision makings I could work on. But at the same time, having an imposed environment, you could even structure it to tell the opposition, I want you to press our guys onto their left foot, right? So you could even manufacture the pressure if it, to get what you want from it, to just go in with a set of balls, set of players with no defenders. I think it's it's truly hard to replicate what will happen in a game because, you know, it's it's really just conjecture before that. You know, you're, you're, you're telling guys something, in an ideal world, this is what it looked like. And then they go on the field and there is no ideal world. <laughs> it just doesn't, it doesn't exist. So maybe I'm, maybe I'm oversimplifying that. Maybe there's a, more science to the unopposed piece. I know Conte, for example, is a coach that uses it a lot. There's a lot of Italian coaches use that unopposed um, variation in there. So I don't think it's wrong, as there are no rights and wrongs in football, right? But just for me and my work, I, I prefer the opposed piece. When you go to, say, a high school pitch, and I've seen some stormers in my time where it's, you know, it's, a, it's by the time it's October and there's football in it, it's a bumpy surface, and right. so they're so they're taking your session design, and they're saying, "Okay, well, I'm going to do that." And the first balls played, either ability level of the player, 
confidence level the player, surface, whatever it is combined, the ball goes over the foot and goes out of play. And it, it happens a hundred times. Does the coach scale back and say, all right, let's take all the defenders out and get some confidence in? Or, or does the coach then just reduce the pressure or reduce the type of pressure? I think that in, in that specific environment, Gary, for sure there has to be technical development, right? So whether that's in your warm-up or whether that's you're just literally taking some players out and having them work on the specific skill of, okay, moving backwards, opening up your hips, taking your touch out. And then as it relates going back into what you're going to come up against, I think how you build up your play, you're right. You, if you've got you know full-time professionals, how you build up is going to be different than how you build up with high school players that are only playing for two or three months a season. I still think, though, the, the overall mindset can be the same, but it's just how you get there, right? It's how you achieve it. And if I'm looking at, let's say, a forward pass into the number six and exactly what you just said there, rolls under his foot, now the, the transition happens, they're off on a goal, well, I'm probably going to position him a little bit differently to try and get him facing forward, you know what I mean? So I think for, for sure in those moments, the coach has to be, he has to realise the real world. What's what's you know almost future predict? How do I see this playing out and try and structure it such that he's putting his players in the the right positions for them, rather than hey, this is what I want it to look like, and I'm going to force this through, <laughs> no matter what it happens. You know. Let's stay on the topic of session design. Whenever you're going through your training sessions, always interested in this when you're when you're actually doing a build up session. You always start from a goal kick. Do you always start with a with the ball at the feet of the goalkeeper, or do you start in a different scenario or with a transition that that you recreate before it, or how does that look? So when I when I very first started this work, everything was from a restart. So whether it be a free kick in the defensive half or a goal kick, um, I think that started to evolve and. I went through a period, probably about two or three years ago, where everything started with a rondo in a game. So I'd set up a, not even a coned area, but an area that would have a 5e3, and it was the three players that would win it, and then we'd transition into what it is we wanted to do, right? So it was a way to start the game. More recently, actually, I've started working on throw-ins, right? Throw-ins over the last two years were a huge bugbear of mine, where... I started doing more statistical analysis um, with a, a, a PDL team that I coached on what's the percentages of throw-ins that we kept or created an attack from versus we gave it up. And I'm, I'm not joking, the first year, Gary, it must have been like 65 to 70% of throw-ins, whereas one touch we gave it away or it was in a nothing area and we didn't ever use them. So now... I've almost taken it to the degree here where, again, in, in, in training sessions, I try and have between 40 and 50 times over the course of a session where we'll start from a throw-in. And it's probably a bit pedantic of me, but it's one of them where, especially in youth football where I'm coaching now, the restart from a throw-in is, go is critical. It's, it's almost, I mean, it virtually happens more than any other action in a game. And that's just their age or the size of the field or lack of control, whatever you want to put it down to. So I've started looking at, okay, how can we uh, build in areas that if it's a, a throw-in in our own half, which is almost like a corner sometimes for the, for the other team, how can we still 
build out from there? What are the mechanisms we use? Um, and I've tried, I've tried to study leads. I've tried to study teams that, that are that are big into this. And but there's honestly, there's not a lot of pro teams out there that are so fashioned into throw-ins. Unless you start to look at like a Mitchelland or a Brentford or Stoke back in the day that used the long throw-in, obviously as a way of um, of a way of attacking. But in, it, in order to keep the possession, it's something that I've I've looked at a lot. And last year, um, I'd let the little study in the in the DA that I worked in, and we managed to get over fifty-five percent of our throws. Something an attacking action happened from it. So it's something we looked at and put a lot of work into. And this year, obviously, we're just starting. And we're we're looking to try and better that again. So it's I it's it's an important part of your work that if you're looking at possession and you're looking at a team that is in control of the ball, you have to consider all of them, all the restarts, kickoffs, the whole deal, you know. Very interesting. Because when you think about it, every build up starts with the goalkeeper from a goal kick. But that only happens six, seven times a game. Right. And then what you're saying there is there's Sixty throw-ins that were what were squat. It's funny, Ali. How many coaches complain about throw-ins? It's the most complaining thing in the game, right? Our right. ball, our ball. <laughs> and <then> they're squandered, <laughs> giving it away. Right. Uh, so, but but I really like that because it also then communicates to your players how you value throw-ins, right? Right. Absolutely. And it's, and it's again, it goes back to that piece about. Um, the understanding, right? We can't just expect that, okay, we've got a throw in 50 yards from goal, the opposition shifted over, they've now got a 7v5 in our zone, we've got our weak side fullback and winger stretching. How do we keep it in a 5v7 if I've not worked on it? Do you know what I mean? Or I've not given them cues as to, are we throwing it back? Are we throwing it forward in this zone? Or who takes the throw ins? Right? Am I got my fullback doing it? My winger doing it? So, Honestly, this this all unraveled, <laughs> truly, in, in in a in a end of season. You know, how can I get better? There's n- nothing, a, a, you know, any grand plan or any idea. I just completely stumbled on it, and it's it's all about watching your team and, and knowing your players, really. Just in general, because uh, I know in the start of the season sometimes it's layered. But do you use the whole team in the build up training or? You know, and or do you think coaches make some mistakes here in session design when neglecting? I know your work and looking at your work, you talk a lot about relationships between the lines. So I'm guessing that you do involve quite a few of the units. Do you think we do you think we look at it a little bit too uh, superficial whenever we're looking at build up play? Two centre backs, two full backs, and a goalkeeper. Yeah, well, it's and this again goes back to the philosophy, right? Of I've tried to focus on in games, right, we're going to build up on the right-hand side this game, for say, right, or, or I've not identified the left side of the opponent was particularly weak. So during the week, those players that are playing in those positions, right, so they get, you know, right-back, right-mid, centre-back on the right-hand side, right-back, centre-back, whatever, they have to be training together, and I, and I mean specifically those seven players or six players or whatever, so the more I can get those players in scenarios where you know, we've maybe cordoned off the side of the field, so the goals they're shooting into aren't necessarily nets, but they're zones, or I'm playing into a forward zone that someone can maybe go off and shoot and score, or play into a 2v2, and then that right side build up again. I think if you're just putting out a random assortment of players and expecting every player, 
right, to be competent in build-up, you're not doing it. I think you're doing a disservice to your players because the way your right back builds up is going to be totally different. The way your right centre back does is going to be more on the ball. Or if we're using a right winger in build up just to open up the wing and just to open up the space, then his training that or her training that week is more about their positioning, right? Of how do I stay away from the ball? And the more again in this, Gary, that the, the hardest part generally I've found, even youth players, adult players, whatever is having a player stay away from the ball and not come towards it. <laughs> Genuinely, 99% of players want to move to get the ball and they see standing still as a bad thing. They see it as, well, I'm not doing anything, I'm just hanging out. Or, you know, you hear those coaches that berate players on the sidelines for not moving. Like, what does that even mean, right? So it's yeah. it's it, having, they, they're having the understanding as I'm, as critical to this build-up, even though I'm 70 yards away and standing still as the guy on the ball. Um, and if you can enthuse that amongst your players, now you start to get their buy-in as to, well, I'm here for a reason. I'm not just because, you know, I'm in this position. And conversely to that, if they then lose the ball, that's equally as important in your build-up. How do we go on it back again? What's your transition? Um, so when we talk about the session design, I'm always very cognizant of the fact that, yes, we want to build up in a controlled manner, but it's going to mess up at some point. We're going to give the ball away at some point, so we have to be ready to to quickly run and get it back again. Yeah, there, there's an Irish comedian, Tommy Tiernan. Have you heard of him? I have. I get to where he talks about, I don't know if you've seen it, where he talks about that there's literally, you know, the, the problem with society today is that we – we always have to be doing something, and right. there's literally a law against doing nothing. No, no <laughs> loitering. <laughs> I always think it applies to like even even in the most mundane football exercise, where a player, you know, stationary passing back and forth, and the coaches yell, you know, stay on your toes, you still <laughs> for five seconds. It's ridiculous. I know, Man. but then when you watch when you watch the the art of watching these players, these top, top players, especially the attacking ones live, is that the the ability to go quiet, the ability to walk around and just find pockets of space and wait is actually what probably buys them some space some of the time. Well, well, on that as well, if you look at the way, and this is probably more prevalent in pro football now, right, but... Gone are the days of man markers pretty much, right? I mean, now you, you'll see an opponent... Well, you know, we're in debt or we're inbuilt now with the the zonal shift, and as a as a team, you move left and right and up and down and whatnot. And if you literally just stand still, there's going to be a moment in that where you're not marked anymore, or there's just natural spaces occur. So, for sure, I think the smartest players now are the ones that understand where to move, when to move, and that's I think that's always been the case. But now, because there's such a such an emphasis on group defending overall shifting that I just think those spaces are, are so much easier for you to find now that you don't have to come running towards the ball. You could just stand offside and wait for the opposition to drop back and you'll become available. Mm. Yeah, there was we showed it to our team this week. I hate showing Man City clips. You always cringe, you know, you don't want to be that coach. But <laughs> the, when when they when they played Spurs there and uh, De Bruyne for the first one, he's he's kind of in two different pockets. He goes beyond the fullback for the mm -hmm. second one. Yeah. First one, he just he was going to go and he just stops 
and it just Good creates yeah. room. How do you work on that there with the player? So the the spacing one is an interesting one, right? And there's again, this goes back to the age group you're working with. I mean, I work with under thirteens and fourteens this season, and having them retain all that information about okay, when you see your you know marker shift across and and look and peel off and find a guy, that's going to be probably too much for them. But certainly with with adult players, I, I think those that are used to playing in a set position that pretty much have it down. If you're giving them three or four pieces of information of, okay, when the right winger has it, peel off, peel back, right? For example, in that little inside channel to then receive it and whip a ball in the box. I think we have to trust our players with that information more. And I think, to be honest with you, the players would 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 want it, right? And, and this is my sort of amateur psychologist coming out here, but as a footballer, I always felt more confident and more in control if I was given instruction, right? If I was being told that these are the three things I want you to focus on. It was the guys that were, hey, go figure it out. That was the one where I was always on edge of, is this really what he wants? You know, is this, is this, this fall into it? And I think there's a, a lot been made in coaching about trying to simplify things. And I would, I would agree with that. The terminology we use, we probably do have to simplify with players a bit more, but just giving them information and, and of, where and when we want to find the spaces because let's be honest right if you're a centre midfielder there's always going to be time and space for you to get on the ball if you're a winger that's probably not going to be the case there's only going to be certain moments of the game you're going to be able to get on it so how you transfer that information to your players is key and it also goes back to what I said at the start it's relative to how the opposition are defending if they're all just dropping off and you know sitting in their 18 yard box well, that's actually probably easier now to give them information of where we want to find ourselves. Um, and if we want to get really granular into it, it's where the ball is, right? How far are we up the field? Well, that'll dictate what your movement is because we all can't run beyond the line, right? We all can't also stay back and be that option to drop it in. There's got to be a balance of the two. Um, and to your point there about De Bruyne, I think he's that, really that bridge player now we're seeing in football of, yes, he's a midfielder, but his positioning is probably as critical as a, as a centre forward because he's the main man that provides that final third pass or has the shot at the goal or can penetrate the back line. So if his positioning's poor, then how then that almost takes away 90% of what, what City does, right? We'll take a quick break here. Coaches, if you're looking for a little bit more from social media these days in terms of context and depth, please join us on the Modern Soccer Coach Community Platform. Just launched it this month. It's an initiative that I'm trying to get into with a little bit more analysis from coaches sharing their work on the training ground and throughout games and their thinking. We take a different topic every day. We get on there. We discuss it. There's new ideas floating about and then there's also a database of sessions, analysis, presentations, everything that we can get from coaches to make them better uh, at every level of the game. So we'd love to have you on there. The links are on the social media account. The links are also on this podcast. It's only $6 a month, which is the price of a coffee, depending on what your taste is. So two-week free trial, please check it out. We'd love to have you on there. Back to Ali. Thank you. Let's stay on City and let's stay on that 
on that confidence that you were saying there about how how better you felt when you were a young player with that confidence and those instructions and and I I thought it was interesting, really, really interesting. I think it was two years ago when when Guardiola almost made a made a comment about you know John Stones and the courage, and he compared him to every reporter in the in the room at the time, using some colourful language. And do we overlook the psychological elements of ten years ago that centre back was just expected to kick someone? And win the ball and win fifty headers a game. Now that centre back is expected to start the attack, penetrate lines, drop off, recover quickly. Do we overlook the psychological elements in this in this position now? Oh, completely. I, I think especially teams that are possession based, because you know I can tell a group of players to I'm blue in the face about yeah, get on the ball. Here's where I'm moving it and and, and whatnot. But if you don't have an environment. Right, that caters to that, and don't have an environment or a culture amongst your players that I don't want to say are okay with mistakes, right? Because <laughs> because we don't want to be ever okay with mistakes, but at the same time, the default position of a footballer, you know, this yourself is you don't want to be that guy who's messed it up, and the other team, you know, is looking at is he's the weak point, or your own teammates are going, oh Christ, I don't want to, don't want to give him the ball. So there is an element of that where players have to be confident, well enough to put themselves on the line. And I think all players have that in them. Genuinely, I don't I don't think there's a footballer that puts himself out there, right? That shows up to a tryout or puts himself on the line to be a pro footballer that, that doesn't have it in them to uh, to be confident to be to, to want the ball. It's how you react though in the moments of them messing up, right? And there's an element, I think, at Stone sometimes you could argue, does he put himself under pressure, right? Has he got better as a footballer over time? Of course he has. But at this, when he was with Everton and there was that famous clip of him dribbling by four players, well, if, if you break that clip down, he's really put himself under pressure by taking some bad touches. So while, yes, it's good that he's in those moments, you also have to meet the player halfway to say, well, how can we put you in a position where you're not putting yourself at risk and putting the team at risk. So I think the psychological piece is, of course, you know, it has to come from us as coaches, but it also has to be buy-in from players because if players are constantly berating each other all the time for making mistakes, then that just doesn't add up to a good environment at all, does it? No, no. So it happened on Sunday with Chelsea, Leicester, Brendan Rodgers, one of the best coaches in probably the world to build up in possession, and then right. he, those players still making. How do you, as a coach, and you're saying, I thought it was a great point there, we're, we're not okay with mistakes, but how important is the reaction of the coach, and what's the best way to react when your team does have a moment like that? Trust me, in the, in the past, Gary, I, I was very dictatorial. It was, you know, I, I for a long time held the belief of, I need to get whatever's in my head out. <laughs> and I need to tell them very, very quickly and in no uncertain terms. I think there is a way of doing that and there's a way of uh, conditioning that communication, but it doesn't always have to be verbal, right? It doesn't always have to be, you know, all right, I'm going to string him up in a video session on Monday morning and make sure everyone knows about it. I, I think for sure there are ways, conversely to that, where you're not patronising them either. Right, and I think it is definitely knowing the individual. There are some players that we coach you don't have to say anything to. I, I genuinely believe that. You, you let them go on with it. There are players, however, where 
I think, in small groups, right? So whether it be the back four or whether it be the midfield, and ask them the questions. Ask them, how do we solve that? Okay, I could have done this, 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 and this. Perfect. Yeah, I agree with that. Let's go knock ourselves out. And you're not patronising. and You're not, you know, this guided discovery of drawing the answer out of people. Like, I think there is a, a way of... Um, engendering some sort of uh, peer group, whether again, whether it be a back four or midfield, that they then feel, yep, we're all on the same page now. Because again, it could be something as simple. And Didi's a good example there from the weekend of, he just had a bad body position. You know, if someone tells him, you know, turn open up your left side or open up on the whatever side of the field it is before he gets it, maybe he makes a better decision there. Um, so I think it, it could be something as simple as that, right? That everyone's made the right decisions, but it's just created a negative one, and we have to see where that breakdown is. Looking at individual players going back then from centre-backs in possession to the goalkeeper in possession, do you think players like, of course, Ederson today, is it changed how we define direct football, long balls, and make it more now acceptable to play longer passes in the build? I think Ederson's a great example, and I love that you've brought this one up, right, because it's something that, relates back to to pressure, right? We've now seen a, a bit of an evolution in football where probably in the early thousands, it was real high pressure. You know, they were getting after goalies, they were getting after centre-backs. Now that the, the age of the, the cultured goalkeeper or the cultured defender is such that teams started to drop off and block their goal, I think if you, if you drop off and block your goal now in the Premier League, for example, you're dead. You'll just get beat and it's almost like a wasted 90 minutes. So we've now saw this sort of medium block, right? The old AVB <laughs> Tottenham deal of we'll sort of block the central space. Now, when you've now got no pressure on the centre-backs, right, you've got a somewhat high line and you're now taking away the midfielders. Now this is obviously the birth of the goalkeeper that can hit a ball again under control over that distance and his, his ability to find Sterling, to find Mares, or even to find Aguero centrally is absolutely spot on because he's good at it. I think where, again, we can get lost in the details here of a, this is just a regular Saturday league keeper that just thumps it forward into a big space, you are turning the ball over, you know, or at least you're reducing the chances of keeping it. I think he's so good at playing those balls, and obviously the players he's, he's playing it to are so athletic that it's a, it's a, it's a nice marriage. But I, I definitely think we'll start to see more keepers um, work on this and then in turn use it because of the time they've got on the ball and allied to that, the lack of options they've got to split and penetrate, right? I mean, he could of course play a ball in a centre midfielder, no problem, but if you know, they've sat in that medium block and, and let's say Silver's got no ability to get on the ball, then they have to solve the problem and that space is in behind and that, that speaks to what I mentioned earlier. If the goalie can pass it to the striker and the striker gun and score, that's what you should do in football. That's, that's how you score goals, right? Sure is. Sure is. You use your zones, that presentation that you shared on your Twitter uh, with the Charlotte Independence. Loved watching that. The zones that you use, they're all pretty consistent. Is that something that you that are present in every one of your training sessions? My last club, I was at Seacoast United up in New Hampshire um, before this particular club, and they owned their own complex and the... the the guy who was the field manager was amazing. Like I'm talking, painted the lines on for me. Everything was great in training. Here we're getting a little bit more um, 
back to basics, <laughs> shall we say, Charlotte, where you know, you've got to be creative, whether it's the flat discs, you know, the, those ones that sort of players can move over and stuff. I'll be honest, it's it's a tough one, right? Because, I've, and I've had this discussion with a lot of coaches, the zones that we see, and, and it, again, if, for those who haven't saw it, it's basically the five vertical zones with the little checkered lines, and I'm sure everyone saw it in the Guardiola session, so there's probably a few people rolling their eyes here thinking I've just taken wow. that one. <laughs> uh, at the same time, it, how, how I've used it in my work is literally this, right? If the players don't want to use them and they're happy, then I don't use it, right? At my last club, it was a big part of the culture and the players bought into the idea of it will help me understand where I'm positioning myself, um, both horizontally and vertically, right? How You know, the halfway line and the 18-yard box and whatnot are vertical lines and these ones are, or sorry, are horizontals. These ones are vertical. So they give us an idea of where we need to position ourselves. However, that's all it is. It's purely a communication tool of can we be positioned um, more consistently throughout the game and I'm not having to yell at our fullback to pull out or pull in or our winger to pull out and pull in that they can use things. And again, we'd we'd use it in our game fields as well because it's you know youth football, that's allowed. So at the pro level, obviously it's not. So they need to be a bit more um, creative in how they do it. But I, I like them personally because it it's a point of reference it's just a visual reference when you're training um at the same time there's a lot of coaches who might look at that and go nah i'm all set and just carry on with my cones or whatever i, I don't like a lot of cones on the field because i think they get in the way of the ball and maybe disrupt the flow and stuff so it's it's another thing that i can use to reduce the cones but you know it's like i say just pure visual tool last couple for you how do you judge the success of your build-up after the match? Is it do you use an analysis system, your own one? Is it the score? How do you balance all of these uh, different variables? Well, I think this. Well, for sure, the scores. You know, the most important one because you know, going back to even youth football or even pro football, sometimes, right? I could have you know ninety-five final third entries and not score a goal. So I need to use that data now to say, well, what part of the game model is breaking down? Is it the build-up or is it the final third? And at the same time, the numbers could be skewed if the team just backs off. And again, like I mentioned earlier, sits at the top of the 18-yard box, then we'll, my build-up may have been poor, even though we, we, we built ourselves forward 100 times. It could have been 100 bad positions we put ourselves in. So I think my analysis has evolved over the years. Um away from an accumulation of numbers into, okay, what was it prior to the match that I'd set out to do? Set those variables, right? And then try and get some numbers. So for example, um, I've uh, used the inverted fullbacks quite a lot in my build-up play, right? And one of the goals from inverted fullbacks was to increase the amount of times that I could get the ball into our wide players unopposed and then carry the ball into the final third, right? So a lot of people look at the, those inverted fullbacks. You mentioned Man City, Zinchenko at the weekend. Well, he's receiving as a midfielder, and it's great. Another player in midfield. I, I looked at that as they wanted to try and get Sterling and Walker-Peters as many times 1v1 as they could. So that was a way of pulling in Sissoko out of the way so he couldn't double back, right? So that's how I've used it in the past of, how many final third entries can I can I use or can I create rather? 
So again, from an analysis perspective, my build-up is such, or the way I construct the game model is, that's what I want to achieve out of it. And then there's other times where it's okay, they're playing with a 4-4-2 and I want to try and get in behind their midfield line as many times as possible. So I set my analysis up for how many times did we get it there and then what happened, right? So let's say our centre midfielder received it behind the lines 20 times in the game and we created two shots on target from it. Okay, well, when I go back and watch it now, those other 18 times that we messed it up, what did we do wrong in those? How can I show the players some clips of maybe better play or, you know, maybe we just come up against a great defender, <laughs> right? And we, we just have to not come up against him again. You know, it's it's it literally is as, as fluid as that, mate. And it's, I think, to go in with an idea of the these are the variables every single game ever, I think you're setting yourself up for success because you'll never play the same game twice, right? It's going to rain next week or it's not the week after and could be things you can't control, you know? Last one for you. You do a brilliant job of of the, the videos and animations. The thing I, I really enjoyed about going through all your stuff was it looks as if you enjoy the creative piece of, of build-up play and trying to solve problems under pressure and, you know, looking at different teams, Leverkusen, Leeds, Real Betis. Well, where do you draw your creativity as a coach? Where does that come from? I think it's evolved, Gary, over the years. I, I think when I first started coaching, I had a very um, player-centric focus, right? And it was, I'd try and watch teams that had not just the best players, but players that had good relationships. And I think the more I've got into this, right, and the teams that I've looked at, it's relationships, right? that creates something a bit different. So one of the, the coaches I'd looked at in that little study this summer was Tim Valter that was at Holstein Kiel and he's just moved to, to Stuttgart. And one of the big rotations that he'd used was the centre-backs basically moving into midfield, right? Which sounds very simple, but it was just something that the rotational piece of two centre-backs split, number six in the middle, you build central and it's just, you know, samey that you've saw a zillion times. I just try and find coaches now do do things that I've never saw before or I haven't saw done at that level. I remember um, looking at, we mentioned Guardiola earlier, Guardiola's, I think it was second season at Bayern Munich, where, again, inverting fullbacks and, and moving those positions. You know, you'd, we know about it. We've, you know, we, we could do it. We, Christ, we could move players on a chalkboard, but to see it actually happen and why... I think that's really what I look at. And when you talk about that creative piece, the why always has to be because we're going to try and score, right? And if that ever changes, if if it's if the why is, well, we just want to build it out more or create more passes, then that's really not, it doesn't really do it for me. I, I want to try and learn as a coach to help my team create more forward motion so we're going through the opponent. That's why I love teams that press hard against us. That's that's my favourite team to coach against is someone that really gets after us because it's a moving spaces now. It's the teams that drop off and block it in that are personally I find the hardest to break down because now that's more a now you're really reliant on the player's creativity and the player's one V one ability or the player's technical ability to break down the opponent. It's I wouldn't say it's less, <laughs> less about me because it's never really about me, but it's 
there's there's less preparation I can do because you know ten players blocking a thirty yard space. There's really not a whole lot you can do with that, you know. Yeah, plus they can use that. A great conversation with uh, Louis Lancaster about this a f- few months ago, and he was saying that players are better playing out of the press these days when they're technically good because they're just it's more instinct, right? So exactly. it might not be coaching, right? For sure. Yeah. And I think that now that we're, um, I think evolving as coaches, a lot of coaches certainly in, in uh, the southeast where I'm based now, they're starting to look at pressure as a means of attacking. Right, and for a long time, I think a lot of people used pressure as well. We'll just stop the other team playing. I think you're now starting to see a lot more coaches use pressure, like I said, to create counterattacks. But then our default of that is, well, I'll just sit back and then count the space. You know, I've seen a lot recently about um, training strikers who to pick up and who to press. A lot of the time, it was okay. The centre back goes and presses high. What if he doesn't? What if he just sits on the six and prevents the passes? And you know, a, a lot of youth football, as it will continue to be, is aesthetic, right? Is built on what things look like. Well, that's great. I love coaching against those coaches because I'll set it up to create more attacks the, the other way. So it's, I think we're evolving now at all levels of coaching that you have to be organised, literally in everything you do, and giving out blanket statements of, well, we'll just sit back and defend. What does that even mean now, truly? Like, if a team's not crossing it and they're going to try and penetrate me through the middle, well, that's a completely different way than you and I grew up in, of, of the ball we constantly went wide and we just headed away the whole time. So it's I, I, that's the evolution that I, I think we've definitely saw on the professional level. For sure, the Premier League's way more sophisticated now in how teams use their uh, their structure. And I think it's starting to bleed more into youth football where you have to be good now. No longer can you just recruit the best players or come from a big populace and expect to win. Because if that's the case, then why do we do it? <laughs> right? We've got to have a belief in ourselves that what we're doing is is right. Otherwise, why do you show up and do it every night? And that's where that's where our our culture over here is growing, right? Is because I mean, I'm not involved in the youth game, but of course I observe and, and can't help but take an interest in it. I don't see the, the clubs with the biggest pool of players or the biggest resources. I don't see them dominating like they were 10 years ago. No, that's very fair. That's very fair. And I think the the best coaches now are, especially in America, you have to get creative if you want to develop. Um the license courses and whatnot are terrific, and, and that's a route a lot of people go down. But from like myself, for a lot of coaches, once you reach your A license level, that's lovely, that's nice. But a paper sits in a sits in a folder somewhere. But what else do you now do to to develop? And if you're not watching the game or you're not like quick example, I went to a, a Raymond Verhain, um seminar in, in North Carolina a couple months back and I went because I disagreed with him. I went because everything I'd read in his books and I, I purposely do this, I'll, I'll engage in things that don't traditionally or maybe on a, a surface level I agree with, but I want to understand the science behind how he thinks and there were right away some things that I'm thinking, well that's a, a belief I held about him that's not true or that's a thing I've read before that isn't true because he you know, he's explained it differently to me. And I think that's 
the other part of coach education, not to get too philosophical on this one, is how are you getting better? You know, we we constantly are on at our players about working harder and whatnot. If as a coach you're just coming home and you know doing your thing or and that's it, and you're not developing, then you can't expect to your players. And that's that's something I've always held. I mean, I'm still I'm still in my <laughs> early thirties, so I've got a very very long way to go if I ever want to coach at the highest level. But I'm confident that when that time comes, I'm confident myself that I'll be prepared for it rather than, you know, I'm talented enough, that word, you know, that we put out there that, you know, we give ourselves that little pat in the back as if, <laughs> as if yeah. it exists, you know. Well, it's, that's interesting because when you're practicing the habit of, of almost going, yeah, like we all love to use the word comfort zone and challenging ourselves, but number one, you're taking ownership for your education and number to you're putting yourself in a situation where you're going to something that you might disagree with, right? Right. How, how was he in that? How would how was that experience? Very confrontational. Yeah. <laughs> Very, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Very, yeah. Which, which I'm sure everyone's surprised hearing a Dutch coach be confrontational about their beliefs. But, um, but no, he, he put it over in such a way that it, everything was very, very structured in the sense of there has to be a method to what we do, right? So if we expect to simply just put a session on and have no construct of the time that you're doing it, the intensity that you're doing it, the frequency that you're doing it, then you're not developing your players. And and for me, there was a, a belief I held for a long time about information, right? I always had this idea that information is gold. And if you can give players good enough good information, you will help them get better at football. And then now you start to see the components of, again, Andy Robertson's a great example, right, of a guy who played in Scotland. You could argue a failed footballer in Scotland for a long part time, had a great season with Dundee United, went to Hull, again, solid footballer, went to go work with Klopp. And now the, the physical development that we've saw in him is unbelievable. This guy can play it. 90 to 95% optimum the entire season. It's mental, right? So now as a coach, my thought process is, well, yeah, we can give him information if we want to create him, but there's also a physical, right? That physiological component that I have absolutely no grounding in, right? So I went into that course thinking, well, if I just hire a fitness coach, I'll be all set. You, you can work, up, work on that for me. And that was the first thing that we're hearing spoke about was fitness is a football context. And if you don't understand football fitness, you can't be a football coach. Now, again, a lot of people would maybe disagree with that. But at the same time, my takeaway from it was I own everything to do with a football team, from the fitness to the mental piece to the tactical and technical understanding. If I, if I don't, if I'm not versed in those things, if I don't understand how they work, then I'm going to, I'm going to inevitably fail, right? So I have to develop an understanding of, well, if I'm t talking about VO2 max and all these other, you know, sports science phrases, how can I make them football related? How can I understand it without switching off, like me personally? Um, and it was great. It really was. And, and, and bringing all of that together with the football piece of, of helping footballers become better, I think that's my major takeaway from it was there's so much to preparation that is past the cones, the balls and the, and the bibs, it's how long you're doing it for, you know, the intensity and, and that, 
genuinely was a major eye-opener for me because he, he, he broke down Rondos, for example, and the the work rate of players versus a, just a 5v5 with two goals at the, the top and the bottom of the field. And again, you look at it and go, Christ, why have I done a Rondo ever? Right? But then on the flip side to that, you look at the advantages and the technical components of a Rondo and go, well, there are some benefits to that as well. So there's, there is no one absolute. Um, but again, it just gen- genuinely, I'm driving home, three hour drive home. It was great. You know, I'm, I'm looking through my notes to think, well, what could I do differently? And genuinely, Gary, in that one day seminar, I think I took away more than probably the last five, six months of me living in my own little world of this is how I work, you know. Brilliant. What a way to finish it. Ali, thank you so much. This was fantastic. Flew by. Absolutely, mate. Always a pleasure to chat. Thanks so much to Ali for his time and his insight there. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Probably had another five or six questions for him. So we finished off and I said, right, Ali, we'll have to pick this up on a webinar sometime. Uh, So that's going to be in the works. Uh, If you enjoyed it and want a little bit more of that, please let me know. Uh, I thought it was absolutely brilliant. I really enjoyed his perspective. Again, a fair level of humility in it about him changing in the game. And I always enjoy coaches that that share that there because I think it's very important. We we view tactical analysis and we view build-up and we view game models something as a little bit idealistic. And most of the time it's not really. It, it We all have the same setbacks. We all have the same growing pains with any form of tactical work. And it's good to hear coaches that share that there. So the big takeaway for me, the, the one thing that stood out for me among many things was that piece where he talked about throw-ins and the starting piece and I've started to to question the the starting points in training sessions a ball in from the coach or a a ball from the goalkeeper I don't think is good enough anymore because it doesn't paint the picture of the actual moment creating you can't stand stand on the touchline in the game and say it's a moment of transition or it's a moment of clear possession so you're gonna have to be able to program your team or challenge your team into finding those moments themselves and I'd never heard of the throw-in part before and I really enjoy that there because like a lot of coaches I have the same experience with my teams and like a lot of coaches I've never tried to do that there so creativity was the last part we talked about I'm really into that piece at the minute I love hearing about coaches like Ali said coaches that do things a different way I think there's so much information floating out there We've all got access to it. Uh, it, beca- it can become very, very mundane. And I think that actually can, can lead on to the training field as well. I think I've said this on a few podcasts. Uh, I think boring training sessions are actually a bigger danger to us than bad training sessions because you can have something that's not related to your game plan and the players can actually enjoy it. And you can have something that is actually clear and methodical and it can be so boring and so repetitive that the players can just zone out and disengage and I think we should be looking at a little bit more so we'd love to hear your thoughts on that there as always at Gary Kernin on Twitter at Gary Kernin on Instagram appreciate you listening to the podcast please jump on the Modern Soccer Coach platform new content coming every day talk to you soon have a great week goodbye thank you for listening to the Modern Soccer Coach podcast for more coaching topics sessions and resources Head on over to Coach Kernine on Facebook or visit the website at www.modernsoccercoach.com.